Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, we start a journey. It's going to be an interesting journey. I know it certainly was for me. Um, I went through this journey perhaps 20 to 22 years ago, was struggling. Here I was a minister. Many of you knew me back then and you either I was your minister or uh, I was your minister at a distance because you listened to tapes and CDs and the like. But I was really struggling because all of the paths of my information were not coming together smoothly. Have you ever felt that way? Where your faith and what you've been told, the Bible says, doesn't really tend to match up with what your experience is or what science is saying, or you, you get the drift. There just is this clash and you will get people that will just say, well, just believe. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Wouldn't that be a lovely world in which to live? The problem is, usually things are more complicated than that. And if we're being very honest about our scripture, our faith, what we've been told, and our experience, there are some clashes there. And so I went on a hunt to save my faith again. I'd already been on several others and saved it in different ways, but this, this was going to hurt. And then I came across a book called God at War by Gregory Boyd. Now it's a big book. If you can get the book and it's still in print, uh, you can get used copies for almost nothing as well if you want those. Uh, many of them will be marked up quite a bit, but it's a big book. Do not let that frighten you. I'd say a good quarter of the book are footnotes, um, bibliographies and such, and therefore it's, um, you don't have to read all of that, although I'm a real nut about bi bibliographies and sources, so I really enjoyed that. It also reads a lot faster than you might think. I just finished a novel that went 841 pages. It was extremely well written, it was very interesting, and it did not read fast. It took me much longer to read that novel than I wish that it would have. So I'm not sure how to fix that. This is an observation, not a criticism. But with Gregory Boyd, if you pick up a book and it's 400, 600 pages, whatever, it's gonna read quick. Now, let me, let me haste to say something here. I got to meet uh, Dr. Boyd years ago uh, at Pepperdine University when he was on a panel and I was on a panel. We were on opposite ends of the panel and we would still be on those opposite ends because he is a pacifist and I am not. And I know he has his reasons because he's written several books on, uh, on pacifism. The death of the warrior God is the way he styles it. And I really appreciate those, but I don't think his research really gels on those. And I'm not alone in that. That said, I walked up to him and I said, while we're on different sides on this panel, I must thank you because I am still a Christian today because in part, because I read your book. God at war. And he was very gracious. And I, I have no reason to believe that he isn't very gracious to everybody all the time. So just 
because we disagree on one point, and it's kind of foundational to some of his studies, I thought it was important to bring it up. Since then, I've read John Sanders, Clark Pennock, um, Richard Rice, uh, Bassinger, David Bassinger, uh, maybe Basinger, I don't know how he pronounces his name, William Hasker, and Thomas J. Ord. I love, I love Ord's last name, it's O-O-R-D, because there are also some things out there in the universe that we refer to as Ord Cloud and such. But I found myself able to suddenly recognize, I'm sorry, to suddenly bring into the same place and rationalize my experience, the scripture, what I know about science, what I think about science, and what has happened in my life. And all of a sudden, all of the scripture and all of this began to work together, to gel in a way that it never had before. And I know many of you, many of you, uh, you're single moms or you're, you're divorced, you're out there, you're working two jobs. Some of you are, you, know, you have a big family. Some of you are just tired and you're not gonna be able to go out and buy all of these books. You're not gonna be able to go out and shut down parts of your life to study eight, 10, 12 hours a day. I know that. And it's not fair to act like you should and that you know what's wrong with you that you don't. So what I'm gonna to try to do in these long form videos is to come at the idea of open theism. Now you don't need to know what that is yet because you're gonna find out real fast today uh, and then we'll develop it. But this is not your only way of learning. I'm gonna do these long form videos until I've worked my way through original material that I did based on Gregory Boyd's work, God at War, in these long-term videos. Much expanded, much changed, but many of you heard that from me, and I get more requests for that series than I do for any other series except just Jesus stories. However, most of the places that did have it up, it was a long time ago, and they don't have it up now. So we're gonna redo it and place it here. But I come at it in the sermons at our safe harbor, starting on September the 10th, in a different way, not using this material, and I hate to call it old material because it's still valid and it's still extremely powerful. But there is so much more I've learned from all of these other authors, plus several others. And those are gonna be delivered through the sermons on Sunday mornings, starting September 10th. So, if you listen to the sermons, do you need to do these long-term videos? Yeah, if you really wanna know the subject and vice versa, because it's too much information to dump via sermons. And if we did long-term videos, we could do it. We, we really could, but it would probably run into about 20 long-term videos. And maybe one day that's what we'll have to do. Uh, in answer to several questions I've had recently, I'm not really sure why, Maybe it's because you know, I'm taking care of my mother, who uh, at the time of recording this is in hospice. Uh, some people are saying, you know, Patrick, we hope you don't retire anytime soon. I really have no interest in retiring. And as long as I can do this work, and as long as you support this work, I plan to do this work. So it's really up to the support we get for it and, and God. And it could be that sometime down the road, um, 
good friends of mine, and only good friends have the right to do these things, can pull me aside and say, Patrick, we love you, but you're not effective anymore. You've aged out of the process. Understood. And so I've, I've gotten myself kind of ready for that, but I don't think that's going to hit. If the lifespan of the people in my family so far is anything to judge, I've still got another seven to 10 years of work left in me, and that makes me quite happy. So that said, let's get to work. I really, really was struggling, like I said, 20 some years ago. I was leading a very large church, a church that I still dearly love, and they dearly love me. Uh, I, I love to even say that. I, every time I think of them, I smile. But inside, there were some conflicts. We needed, I needed to get together four different streams in my head. One, the biblical witness. Two, the themes in Christian tradition. Three, the philosophy of free will. And that we'll talk more about down the road. And four, following the path of reconciling faith and science. But there was a fifth that kind of circled all around this, and that was my experience. I'll explain. I struggled with Calvinism and still do. I, I absolutely am not a Calvinist, and you'll find out more about that in the sermons than strictly in this series. Um, the idea that God has planned everything, every molecule, as R.C. Sproul famously put it, if there is anywhere in this universe one atom outside of his control, then God's in control of nothing. Well, that is completely illogical. It has so many errors of thought and process in that statement. But also, that means God's responsible for the rape of Nanking, for the Holocaust. God's responsible for the uh, one-punch knockouts of Asian women. He's, he's responsible you know, to where people, if you don't know what that is, uh, a game quote by large people that'll go and just smack uh, Asians who have, come on, people. Yeah, I don't get the race thing anyway. Um, and I know, I'm ignorant. You can go ahead and be angry about that. Uh, I don't understand, because of science, I understand we're all the same people, our cultures are different, we gotta find a way to work together and love one another, period. Let's not get off track. I, I looked, I, no, I'm not going to say that God has planned all things, because if he did, then he's responsible for every rape, every murder, every robbery, every act of neglect, every starvation, but then what do you do with an all-powerful God and the existence of evil? Got a problem? I have that problem. I think we all have that problem. Well, then Armenian, you know, comes in, the Armenians come along. Now, they come following a guy named Jacob Armenius who uh, rejected Calvinism and suffered for it. Uh, Calvin did not allow people to reject what he taught in his city of Geneva. Uh, the idea, the Armenian, Armenianism says that we do have free will and that God did not pre-plan all things, and that we have agency. We can decide to follow God or not follow God. However, God has, from before the moment of creation, known exactly what we were going to choose or not all the way through. And that one may sound very appealing to you. I think it does to anybody who's not a Calvinist. I don't go for either of those. There's another uh, 
much lesser known field of theology that has really gained some steam, and that's process theology. And process theology says that God is learning how to be a God, just the same as we are learning who God is and how to be good humans, that we're all learning together, and it's a process. And I reject that because I believe that God was God since before all time, and he is still God now. By the way, just real quick, there are some people that will say, well, wait a minute, how could he be before all time? Isn't that a, and I get that. I was asked recently a question, uh, the universe is expanding. Well, what is it expanding into? And my response did not, did not settle the question for the individual. And I get that, I, I really do. Uh, when I said, well, it's not expanding into anything because the universe is all that there is. It is expanding. And he says, well, into what? And I'm saying, it's not the way this works. And to help him, I pulled off my wedding ring and I said, please show me the midpoint of this circle. And he couldn't. I said, that's the same as asking me, what is the universe expanding into or where was God before time? Our terms of physics, motion, movement, space, none of these work when we talk to God. So I'm not a Calvinist, I'm not Arminian. Most people would call me an open theist. What that basically means is that God is so incredibly wise that he does know all things, but not all things exist. The future does not exist. He can determine what he wants in the future and it will happen. And he can determine what he will do and people he might pick and choose in the future. But when it comes down to the future, all futures are variables based upon what we decide in any moment. And therefore, there are literally quadrillions upon quadrillions of futures. And our God is big enough to handle any of them. If you're getting a little head spinny right now, it's fine, because we're gonna show you this in scripture. But I was struggling because my experiences were not lining up with what, uh, what preachers had said, including me, I don't talk a lot about prayer, uh, but the prayer preachers, basically that really cool little feeling that, you know, we wake up in the morning and we're able to pray to God and then God answers our prayers. And now some people really do a, a cheap little opt out here and they'll say yes, but sometimes God says no and that's still an answer. That's not what prayer preachers talk about and that's not what Jesus said and so I had in one year, I'd lost three friends, uh, really good friends, two to cancer, uh, much younger than me, two to cancer, and one to heart disease, younger than me, unsuspected. And I was reeling and I had to figure out, wait, we have been on our knees, tens of thousands of people have been on their knees for a couple of years in case of one of these friends. And as far as we can tell, the prayers bounced off the ceiling. So how do I deal with this? It's a real struggle. It was all caused by the picture of God that I had, which was a God that rides to the rescue, a God that is in absolute control of every atom in the universe, before I started worrying about what that actually meant he was guilty of then, this was all a mess. Are, are you tracking with me at all? I hope you're tracking with me. Let's put it this way. I'm not the only one. 
Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he was terribly concerned. You know, that's not even a strong enough word. I think that Gregory Boyd might have called him distraught. That's a great old word. He'd been reading the word of God given through Jeremiah. Now in Jeremiah, and we're going to look at Jeremiah, because um, there's some things God reveals about himself in Jeremiah he does not reveal else, elsewhere uh, as plainly as he does there. Uh, I probably overstated that. Give me a little break here. Right? Now, Daniel had seen that Jeremiah had indicated that the period of bondage, this uh, Babylonian captivity, would last 70 years. Now, again, the Jews did not use numbers with the precision that we use numbers. And that's fine. That's not um, being dishonest. It is accepting the cultural way they use numbers. However, Daniel had a look at a calendar and he realized we've been here about that long and I see no signs of our people repenting. And therefore, I see no end to the captivity. So he went to God and begged God to restore his people, turn their hearts around, change the people's hearts. And he fasted and he prayed for 20 days. If you don't know about fasting, please search the Monday morning messages for fasting and you'll find out how you can do that for 20, 30, and 40 days and not die. There's, you need to understand what fasting really meant to them and how they did it. But he fasted and he prayed for 20 days with no answer from God, nothing. And this was Daniel. Daniel had seemed to be a favorite, don't you think, of God? I, he's, although his, his life was horrible uh, and his body had been butchered and he was in captivity and he would have had lifelong issues from the forced surgery of his youth, he still seemed to be one of God's favorite people. And he's not getting an answer from God, only silence. And then in Daniel chapter 10, God breaks into the universe in a way that he rarely does. So you see, Daniel was kind of special. And he brings Daniel spiritually out of where he is and plumps him down by the mighty river and where the rivers come together so that Daniel can now get a message from God that God doesn't want to talk about in the city. It's a very dramatic uh, passage. It really is. So he looks up and there's an angel. And this angel's mighty. How mighty? <laughs> well, it's so mighty that uh, Daniel goes, he went pale. There was no strength left in him. He dropped. This is Daniel. He wasn't afraid of lion's dens. He wasn't afraid of the king whenever the king wanted him to eat this food. And he's going, no, I can't do that. You, you make your decision. This is what I do. So he wasn't a scared person. This encountering this angel was so frightening that he dropped. And that might be a little thing just to think about. We'll probably do Monday morning messages on some of these angel encounters one day. Uh, we have so much to do. Most time when people say they met, they've seen an angel, what they see is ex exactly what they would have expected to see in their culture with their background and the stories they've heard. So I always wonder if they've really seen an angel or if I've really seen an angel or not. It's legitimate to wonder. It's not legitimate to go up to them and say, I don't think so. You don't question people's experience. But what Daniel, whatever Daniel was expecting was not this. This was bigger, mightier, much more impressive 
and he drops. The angel, a hand touches him and says, and pulls him up to his knees and says, we don't have that kind of time. Don't drop down. We have work to do. Now think about that. We don't have that kind of time. Well, God has a plan and everything is lined up. Well, then Daniel up or down, that's all in the plan, isn't it? No, Daniel needs to get up and play his part. You have a part to play in the plans of God. You can help move it forward or you can frustrate. And he may have to choose somebody else or go to a different plan because God works with humans. He's walked with us since day one. In the garden there, here, in a cosmic battlefield that Daniel's going to get a glimpse of that he had no idea existed. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, uh, the angel says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. Well, there are two ways to look at this, and both of them make us go, hmm. Since he started the fasting and prayer, it's what most people would think, and I think that's probably what the angel was referring to. What, what would take an angel 21 days to get past to get to Daniel? He said, from the day you started, I've been trying to get to you. So something may be going on that God works through a process with us, not process theology, but he works through a process with us. He is open to working with us. And something was delaying the angel. Or you can look at, at verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Wait, what? It is generally accepted uh, because of the teaching of the Jews, and this is their book, that he is speaking here of demons who were lords over territory. Now, you can also use it to say, no, it's, it's the real king, human king. It works both ways. But however you do this, Michael has to come, Michael has to come and fight in this guy's place, this angel's place, so that he is free enough to get to Daniel. And he says, this, we got to make this quick because I got to get back. There's a cosmic war going on out there. Now, we're not Zoroastrians. We're, we do not believe in dualism. We don't believe that uh, good and evil are equal strengths um, and that the universe is in a eternal battle between good and evil because neither of them has an advantage over the other. We don't believe that. We believe that God is only God and he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We believe he is much mightier than evil. Why evil still exists? That's a question. Um, it's called theophany, the study of evil for those who believe that there is a God. You know, why is there evil there? Theophany. We're going we're gonna to bump up into that quite a bit during this study, but it is a long-form study, and it does have sermons to go with it, so be a little patient, if you would, all right? Um, he goes on, let's, it's a whole chapter, but verse 20. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to the prince to fight against the prince of Persia. 
And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I'll tell you what's written in the book of truth. And then he even goes on and says, um, and nobody support, supports me against them but Michael, your prince. Is this Michael the archangel? Almost certainly. Uh, you may or may not know this. Um, Michael, uh, Saint Michael, as he's generally called, the archangel is referred to as a patron saint of all of those in law enforcement. And uh, I have several challenge coins. You can look up what that means. Whenever you shake hands with an officer or a military person and you've earned their respect at some level, you may have a coin then in your hand or a small miniature badge in your hand. And you're supposed to reply with one to them. Uh, generally speaking, if you don't, then you have to buy the drinks. So watch out where you do this. Anyway, the ones I carry for law enforcement have the prayer of St. Michael on the back and on the other side have God bless our first responders and such. And so I, I, I hand those over. By the way, you can get those on Amazon. So I don't I make them up. You can have them made up. That costs too much. Moving on. St. Michael is the fighter. Uh, people have asked me what I would ever do if I woke up and saw an angel in my room. And I said, well, one of the first things I'd probably do is pass out, scream, or run. But if they settled me down, my, the first thing I would ask is, what's your name? If it's Gabriel, it's good news, because everything he talked about was good news. You see Gabriel, good news. If it's Michael, eh, this could be a bad day. There's battle. All of this is going on. Curtains of our space-time pulled back to let us see the war that's constantly going on. And that begs a question now, doesn't it? Why is there a war? God's all-powerful, and I believe that he is. But what do we know? What, do we, what does all-powerful mean? Ah, you know, I think that comes in like part four or five of the sermon series. So parallel tracks here. All-powerful doesn't mean that you can do anything you want to do. It, it just doesn't. Can God make a circle shaped like a square? No, that's internally inconsistent and silly. Can he make a log so big that he can't lift it? Once again, we have jumped into the illusory world of smartness when that's not a smart thing to say. It has so many issues and problems with logic. God himself says God cannot tempt us. God cannot lie. He has put some limits on himself, but he also is limited by his very nature. God is love. God is righteous. So there are limits because of who he is. But he is all powerful. Is that a contradiction? Nope. We'll talk more about it as we go. There were other people who got to see behind the scenes. Elisha, um, his servant, uh, whenever they were circled, encircled by uh, the king of the Arameans and the king wanted to kill Elisha, uh, his servant was going, oh no, we're in big trouble. Elisha said in a prayer, God open his eyes that he can see what's really out there. The servant looks out and sees, yes, they are surrounded by uh, these Arameans, but that the Arameans themselves are surrounded by a vast army and chariots of fire. And yes, that's where they got the movie title from. Great movie. So once again, little bit of the curtain pulled back. John the Revelator, 
got a little bit of the curtain pulled back at one time and there was silence and he was about to write something and the angel goes, you can't write this. Paul talks about a weird experience he ha he'd had and he, he even goes third person to talk about it. You know, I knew a man, whether in the body or not, I don't know, but he ascended up into here and he saw things it's not lawful for a man to speak about. So there were these moments and amazing moments where God pulled enough of the curtain back to certain people that we know what's going on. This, however, this announces the death of our simplistic cosmology. Something such as we pray and a big shiny God hears us and Jesus shows up holding a lamb and answers our prayer. Now it's more complex than that when you're on a battlefield, isn't it? It really is. I can remember when I was a boy reading accounts of battles. Our family had been military for literally hundreds of years. Uh, and I, I would see, all right, on this side they had, I'm making up numbers now, all right, 20,000 men. On this side, they had 7,000 men. So all these guys have to do is kill 7,000. These people kill 7,000. These guys will win. There's 13,000 more of them. It didn't take into account terrain, equipment, morale. It didn't take into account uh, the, the training, the skill, the leader. None of that was taken. You know, who's defensive, who's offensive. All of those things are factors in play. Far too often when we talk about God battling evil, we, we dip into that simplistic childlike mindset. And I, how many times I've had people say, you know, God's got this, you're good, God's got this, and they are correct but it is not comforting because yes, God's got this, but there are two kinds of people who follow God, those still living and all of those dead. They're living with him, stop it. They're not down here anymore. They died of cancer, war, disease, accident, uh, old age, whatever it was. So following God and having God's got that does not mean we're going to be okay physically, emotionally, situationally we will be okay ultimately but i fear that people are trying to give comfort in the here and now when basically we should be saying it's a war this is going to hurt i can remember when my son had a bike accident and my wife called me and she said i think he needs stitches it's the same bike accident every kid has where they come down they hit their chin on handlebars of a bike and so they drove, I could hear my son at the time, he's just a little guy, just a little guy. He's a big, strong, brave man now. He was a little guy back then. And I could hear him saying, I don't need stitches. <laughs> they drove him down to my office and I pulled the, the, um, the, the little washcloth away and I went, oh, we do need stitches. So we went to the hospital there and uh, they looked at him, yeah, we need stitches. And laying back, and he's a little guy in, in an ER. He's not happy about this. Who would be? And uh, the PA came in, had the little needles off the side, and he goes, now, we're gonna give you, a, you know, gonna numb up. They don't say we're gonna give you shots to do it. We're gonna numb you up around here, and then we're gonna st you know, stitch it together. He's got the needle back here. And my son looked at me, and, and he said, is it gonna hurt? And the PA said, no, no, you won't even feel it. And I just held my hand up, and I look, looking at my son, and I said, yes, but you can do this. And if you want to, I'll hold your, your hand, 
and I'll put my other hand over your eyes. Do you want that? And he nodded. God never tells us this won't hurt, ever. He never tells us that the road will be easy. He is there with us. But doesn't that make you wonder, well, then why not clear the road? Well, maybe there's something else going on. In fact, there is something else going on. The number one question I got when I ran a, a blog called Tent Pegs for a year, I'm sorry, 10 years, uh, had something to do with the existence of evil. The second was, why aren't my prayers answered? A lot of people become atheists because of the simple, simplistic cosmology they've been taught where I prayed and I prayed and I went to church and I gave and I sacrificed and I, I went on short-term missions, I gave to charities, and yet I have Parkinson's or I have ALS or I have um, cancer or I've got my child, even worse, my child has cystic fibrosis or my child had, why didn't God listen to my prayers? Excellent question. And I don't believe that simplistic Calvinism or Arminianism have the answers to get us through those crises. The true nature of the universe is not triumphalism. It is battle. And the true universe was shown to Daniel in chapter 10. There's a war going on. Good angels are fighting for us. Bad angels, forces, whatever you want to call them, are fighting against us. And not everything that happens is because God wills it. Sometimes things happen because humans choose it. And some things happen because we refuse to learn from what happens when we choose evil. So much to talk about. You ever wondered <coughs> about evil forces? Have you ever wondered why some of your prayers don't seem to go higher than a ceiling? Have you ever considered the existence of an evil prince over a region as a factor in whether or not a child is molested or a baby is born healthy or ill or whether a group of people accept or reject the gospel, that this might not all be humanity. There might be a spiritual aspect, a battle, a ruler over a territory that is having a real impact on what we see and experience. Again, is God all-powerful? Yes, but what does that mean? It means he cannot do evil, he cannot be unrighteous, he cannot do anything outside of his nature. So we have to talk about the nature of God. In the sermon series, we started with the two big questions. What kind of God created the world? And two, what kind of world did that God create? By the way, I took those questions by a man I've already mentioned uh, here, Richard Rice, uh, some of his work. When he, when he started an essay with those questions, I went, finally, somebody nails it. So what kind of God do we have? We, we've got to learn about that. We have to learn also about some of our terms. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that is true, and that is very comforting, but it doesn't tell the whole story. What is the future? Has it been determined ahead of time? 
Has God already decided ahead of time everything about the future? I had a almost a caricature of a Calvinist show up when I was in Colorado speaking, uh, preaching for just a couple of years. Uh, and he was determined he was going to convert me to Calvinism. He wasn't a member of our church. He just came to Bible class and then would throw out questions. And then between Bible class and our worship time, he would try to corner me and just throw things at me. Um, I finally, because I had, I had people to talk to, I had work to do. I looked at him and I said, what if you're right? If you are absolutely right, then why are you standing in front of me? Because God planned that I was going to reject every argument you made and that you were going to be frustrated. So what is the point of continuing this if God has already planned that I'm not going to be a Calvinist? And he got a little bit upset, but I couldn't help that. I had work to do. Does God know what you're going to wear next week? Is that locked down? Is that written in stone? For some of you, this, this is getting perilously close to blasphemy because your picture of God has everything pre-planned out forever. Yet I can see things in the world and go, I don't think God planned that. I don't think God approves of that. I think God would rather that not have occurred. Do you not have those feelings? If you're honest with yourself, then what do we do? Here's the thing. This process, this work that we're going to go through in these long form videos revealed to me a God that works in all of those different streams that I mentioned, all four and the big five, the experiential stream. It revealed a God who's willing to listen to us, to change the course of human history for us to go to plan B, C, D, whatever it takes for us. A God who works with us, walks with us, loves us, considers us. And when he says things like, come let us reason together, it is not come, a come to Jesus moment where you just do what I tell you. He's actually, he's actually gonna work with us. A God that whenever he tells us that if we agree about something on earth, he'll agree about it in heaven, wasn't lying. But is showing his ability, flexibility. Because love is flexible. Love has always been flexible. And somehow we missed it. I believe that much of the condition of our world and our hearts can be explained by the fact that there are cosmic wars going on right among us, through us, in us, and over us. There are angels that cooperate with God, but there are also angels that do not like God's plan, that do not like the elevation of humankind to a place that will be much higher than them when we are now lower than them. I believe that there are those who resist the will of God, human and cosmic, angelic, demonic, however you want to phrase it. Physical and, and metaphysical, I believe there are pulls on us toward God and pushes away from God. I, I love the God at War title that Gregory Boyd used for his outstanding book, which again, I recommend highly. 
I like to look upon all of this when I've read all of these books and, and they're into the scores by now and a number of essays and lectures I, I couldn't even guess at. I like it more as God, the universe and everything because it really does tie us together. It helps us to learn how to negotiate with God and let him negotiate with us. I believe that when Jesus prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he wasn't playing in a fantasy world in his mind going, but I know everything's already predetermined, so what's the point? No, the Lord's prayer indicates we have agency. We can ask God for our daily bread and he will respond, which by the way, leaves a big gaping hole over here if we don't turn around and look back at it. If we don't ask and if we don't interact with God, then we don't get. Why don't we look at that side even when the book of James starts off by saying, you're not getting stuff because you're not asking. And when you do ask, you're asking out of the lust of your own heart, not out of what God wants for you. Well, that would seem to kill the idea that everything is predetermined for us and the world. Why would Jesus pray in John 17, that amazing prayer, um, for the unity and the peace of his people, if that was already predetermined, yea or nay, and in what areas? It, it makes a mockery of prayer. It also makes a mockery of prayer to say that every time we pray, God answers us and he will just change everything around just for us. No, no, sometimes he won't. He won't. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. But I do know that he is God and that we're allowed to question, we're allowed to wrestle, we're allowed to fight our way through here. So let's get started. You didn't think we were started already. Let's get started. Uh, many of you recently, if you're watching this anytime near to the time where it's originally posted, you've recently seen the movie Oppenheimer. Um, those of you that haven't, I guess we always have to say this. It is rated R for a reason. They did put in um, three nude scenes that they really didn't need, but they did. So that's there. The movie has, is, is mainly accurate, although it really condenses a lot of things. It puts people that were in the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in East Tennessee as if they were out in the deserts in the West. But it once again started the big question, you know, was it right to drop bombs on Japanese cities? When you go to Japanese cities, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you, um, you will see appropriately monuments that are sad for the deaths of all of these people. And we should be just brokenhearted. And so I always look around and go, but where's the, uh, where's the other side of the story? If you've read, for example, the Knights of Bushido, which was one of the earliest comprehensive distillation of reports about the behavior of Japanese citizens and the military back during that time. By the way, that was because of their religion and their social structure, which has been changed a long time ago. So I hold no animus toward Japanese, Russians, anybody. 
things change, all right? And Americans are not spotless, and certainly the Brits are not spotless in the way we've conducted ourselves in history. Everybody has this right. But I always say, before you, you march for this cause, read The Rape of Man King. Read The Knights of Bushido. Then you will see why the decisions were made. Now, you don't have to agree with those decisions. You can still say those were highly immoral decisions, but at least then you're making your decision as an informed individual. That's all. I, I always like it. When people disagree with me, that doesn't upset me at all. If they come from a point of informed dissent, I've seen that they've read the material, they understand the material, they come to a different conclusion, I say, God bless you then, because either one of us is wrong or both of us are wrong, but at least we are asking, seeking, knocking, right? We're doing our job. But evil is out there. There should be no question that evil exists. And I do not want to give illustrations. I don't want to go through the horrors of Nanking, the Burma Railway. I don't want to go through the horrors of the, the Black Hole of Calcutta, where the British, don't get me started. I don't wanna give illustrations that occurred at Dachau or Auschwitz. I don't want to do that. You should know these things. And besides, if I start talking about all that sort of thing, YouTube algorithms will probably mark it as hate. And I don't hate, I don't think you hate. Here's the thing, you need to know this. And you need to be able to work this in your head, this dichotomy that every time you have ever in your life sung a praise song, maybe if you're in one of the very expressive uh, religions, your arms are raised, your eyes are closed, and tears are dripping down your face. You are honestly, with all of your heart, praising the goodness of God. Every time you've done that, children have starved to death in the arms of their mother. People are being bayoneted. Villages are being wiped out. Tsunamis, hurricanes, cyclones. So what, am I saying God is not good? No, I think God is very good. God is the ultimate good. That should not be a surprise that I believe that. But when we approach God as if evil is not also in the universe, we are missing the story of God and our place in the universe and what we are to be about in the universe. You, if you're like me, you wonder how could people be so low as to enjoy being a concentration camp guard? to enjoy brutalizing another people just because they're not you. Uh, you know, white people brutalizing non-white. Asian people brutalizing each other because this Asian's not that Asian. African tribes warring each other because they're different tribes. How can, how can people sink so low as, for example, the genocide in Rwanda? They've been living together, but now all of a sudden you're a different tribe so you're beaten and killed. Or in Eastern Europe, do I need to go through Bosnia, Serbia, Herzegovina, all of those, do I need to? 
they'd live beside each other in peace for the longest time. All of a sudden, boom, and it was horrible. How can human beings sink that low? How can people think, as in Iraq, um, the rulers there, about putting people feet first into wood chippers? And that should make us wonder about people, but it also should make us wonder about God. Why does why do these evil things exist? If God is all loving, all perfectly good, then he has to want to protect that child in South Sudan. He has to, be, he has to want to love on the family in South Africa whose electricity has gone now and they have no jobs and they have no future. Or where is God when a drunk driver plows into a children's playground? God didn't stop it and that makes no sense and that is the problem of evil if uh, there is no problem of evil by the way if you're an atheist uh, there there is only a problem of evil if you're a believer do, do you need me to expand that a bit if you're an atheist you already believe that everything is a result of chance uh, the survival of the fittest to put it in the sim most simplistic terms uh, and therefore evil always exists and everything eats everything else and therefore there's not a problem of evil. But if you believe in an all good God, you've got a problem of evil. And for those of us who believe in God, very often we, we point to the intricacy of the universe, as do I, and arguments from design, which I also use. We also have small groups that will gather together and sing God is good and they've learned to chant back. When a preacher goes, God is good, they'll yell all the time, and he'll yell all the time, and he'll yell back, God is good. Uh, yeah, but we have to admit that the cosmos is not saturated with goodness alone. It's also saturated with evil. And that means either that God is not powerful or not good, or it means that something else exists out there and we haven't got our head around the plan yet. The plan isn't for you to have heaven now. It may be more complicated than that. Augustine, most commonly called Augustine, and I've heard people fight over how to pronounce it. <laughs> people will fight over anything. Told us that we ought to consider all the harm that comes to us from the hands of others is really coming from our Father's hand for some good reason. Uh, you know, all of this came from God because we brought it upon ourselves. In the cult of Scientology, they actually believe that if you're 10 years old and are raped, it's your fault. Somehow you drew this into you. It was your fault. And Augustine's not far from it when he makes statements like this. And both of them are ludicrous and horrific. Um, I'm not a big Augustine fan, if you haven't gotten that thing. By the way, a lot of people jump in here and they'll say, no, 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 no. God didn't do it. He just allowed it to happen. I got to ask you a question. How's that any better? How does that get God off the hook? And again, a lot of people are going to get upset and nervous and check out of this series long before they should, because there's an incredible comfort, but you got to hang in there. You got to, you got to face the facts before you can learn how to work with the facts. Would you have allowed everything that's happened to you? Would you have allowed it 
if you weren't you, but you were God, a God, or you had the power to stop it. Well, I can't tell you the num numbers of revenge fantasy or hero fantasies that I've had in my life, thinking, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I could have done this, or I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have jumped in. We all have those, or I think we do. There's even that song, and I love the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Love it. I love the backstory of the song. But even there, I cringe when I hear the line, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ooh, um, long term? I'm with you. If you're talking about not just on earth, but after we leave the planet. But if you're talking, if you're trying to convince somebody now that hang in there, things will get better in this lifetime, this is not, this is not comfort. Can you imagine God smiling at some greater purpose as the Jews are herded into the gas chambers? Can you imagine through their tears, he's up there going, oh, wait, you don't get it. There's really good stuff behind. No, no. There's a beautiful old hymn, Does Jesus Care? And I love the swelling response. Oh, yes, he cares. I know his, he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. I wish we sang that more. I wish we read Lamentations more. I wish we sang and read the lament songs more. Then maybe we wouldn't be caught off guard when we're in the middle of a praise song and a shooter walks into our building. Maybe we wouldn't be quite as shocked. Again, I've quoted R.C. Sproul and here I'm going to absolutely quote him not summarize, to show you why I absolutely reject his teaching and the teaching of Calvinists everywhere. But let's let him say, quote, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Perhaps that one maverick molecule will lay waste all the grand and glorious plans that God has made and promised to us. Maybe that one molecule will be the thing that prevents Christ from returning." End of quote. That comes from his best-selling book, Chosen by God. Do you understand that thoughts and decisions originate somehow through electrical chemical packets that fire through the brain. Information taken in, sorted, reacted upon. All of those, uh, if you keep stripping them down, will go to molecules before they go to atoms and then to you know, protons, neutrons, quarks, and all the other things. Um, you're saying that God was completely in charge of Hitler's thought processes and 
decisions and the actions of Himmler, Heydrich, and Gem, you know, all of these Himmler, you know, all of these people, Göring, uh, Tojo, Hirohito. How about Lieutenant Kelly in Vietnam? What about what about? Those were all sourced and acted out through the use of molecules. Was God's sovereignty over them? By the way, there was a horrific shooting years and years ago at a elementary school up in the north in New England. You might remember, mentally ill young man, I do not name shooters, uh, got a semi-automatic rifle out of the safe. Uh, he went into the school and he massacred not just teachers, but little babies, kindergartners preschoolers. The great Calvinists that you know in the U.S., from John Piper on down, had to find a way to tell their congregations and their parents that yes, God did choose which kids had to die that day. If that is not, if that does not make you furious, I'm not sure you understand what just happened. Is our God a murderer? Does our God kill wee babies? Without a thought, arbitrarily, just this one lives, that one dies. There are people who believe that that's what God does. Now, Albert Einstein probably did not believe in God in the way we think of God. But when he said God does not play dice with the universe, what he meant was that there are understandable patterns and formulas to what we see occur. And I think people try to overlay formulas, human-made and personalities human-made upon our God, and it just doesn't fit. We have a problem. We have a really problem. Augustine, or Augustine, uh, I'll quit doing that, maybe. Hang on. You ready for this one? He said we should not look upon evil as evil, but rather artistic brushstrokes by God. He, he denied the existence of evil. He said it only seems to be evil because of our limited perspective. What? Here's a quote. God would never have created any whose wickedness he foreknew unless he had equally known to what uses in behalf of the good he would turn him, thus embellishing the course of the ages as if it were an exquisite poem set off with antitheses. For what are called antitheses are among the most elegant of the ornaments of speech. As then, these oppositions of contraries lend beauty to the language, so the beauty of the course of this world is achieved by the opposition of contraries, arranged, as it were, by an elegance not of worlds, but of things, end of quote. Okay, Augustine, um, can I take you with me and let's go to a battered women's shelter and let's let you tell them that the beatings and rapes and the degradations that were rained down upon them were not evil, but antitheses ornaments that they were placed there to show us by contrast the beauty 
of life and that God, there's, he wasn't, your, your abusers weren't evil. They were just something that God understood he was going to do this great thing with. You know, so I, I don't think you're coming out of there, Augustine, without getting hit. And rightly so. See, I'm not a pacifist. No wonder one of the best-selling atheist books of the last 60 years is called God is Not Good and another God is Not Great. They latch on to statements like this and then they throw the burning bodies of children in our face and say, where is your God? How can there be a God if you allow such things to exist? And it works. It, it does work. When we experience a horror, and I just, I, I don't want to fill in the gaps there. You fill in what horror you want to. We blame God, and we can never bring ourselves to trust Him again or forgive Him. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people. A lot of people used to be Christian. Ask them why they're not now. And if you're really good friends with them, they'll tell you the truth. And it will have to do, it'll have something to do with a horror that um, they cannot reconcile with a loving God. Does, so here's a big question. Does affirming that God is all powerful commit us to the view that there is good behind all things we observe in this universe, even what we interpret as horror and evil. Does believing in an all-powerful God mean that he controls the molecules, every molecule in the universe? Here's an interesting fact. There is no problem of evil in the scripture. It is never addressed ever. It's all around us, but it's not in Scripture. <laughs> that really shocked me when I first found that out. And I went through yet another read of Scripture trying to find it. And you know me, I'm a data hound. I'm going to go for it. It's not there. Could it be that way because God, the Bible's view of God and the Bible's view of the universe is not our classical Christian view that we've held just to pick a bad guy, since Augustine. Hmm. And he's the first one to talk about original sin. He's the first one to make us ashamed of our bodies. He's the first one to push purity culture. He's the first one. I mean, come on. We got to admit a whole lot of stuff started there. But could it be that the biblical view of God is not the same as the one we were taught? You might be saying, but I'm not Catholic. We weren't, you know, we didn't follow Augustine. You know something? I bet you did. Because it's really hard to find a Protestant church that hasn't, doesn't have quite a lot from him or Calvin. There's an interweaving there. In Scripture, the psalmists do lament evil, but they're never surprised that it exists. And they will call for God and say, why aren't you doing something? Get down here. But they never say, I don't believe you're there or this wouldn't have happened. How can this happen if there is a God? They don't go that direction. Instead, they say, let's go. 
kind of like the you know, Todd Beamer and the group in a plane hijacked over Pennsylvania saying, all right, we have a part to play. There is evil, going to kill us, but we get to decide who else it kills. And we say nobody else but us. Let's go. It is that teamwork with God that we miss because we've never really been taught it. Rather than considering evil as just another part of his plan, you might want to look at your Bibles more often. Now, because this is a long view, every now and then we're going to have moments like this where I turn to Scripture, and it gives you time. If you've got your phone up, you can just pop it in there, or you can turn to it. I'm going to go to Psalm 5 first, and we're just we're picking and choosing here. All right? We could dip in a thousand places, but we're not going to do that. We're, we're shrinking this. And again, remember, the sermons, which are 30 to 40 minutes each, don't tread the same material, although they do intersect a few times, but it will come at the same, it'll arrive at the same destination using Scripture. All right? So I know it's asking a lot, but you guys have asked a lot from us, haven't you? You've asked for this material. So here it is. Uh, Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. Um, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. Um, that doesn't seem to indicate that they are merely the artistic brushstrokes of God, bringing up antitheses, which in language creates beauty and therefore we must know there's none of that in there how about psalm oh, 45 let's go there For psalm 45 verse 7 isn't watching patrick turn to scriptures just incredible television <laughs> um, 45 and verse 7 you love righteousness and hate wickedness therefore god your god has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy um we're supposed to love righteousness and hate wickedness, not embrace it as the brushstrokes of God. Um, all right, let's, let's do one more. We'll, we'll jump out of Psalms, though. We're going to go all the way over to Proverbs, which is just a few pages or a few clicks for you guys that are using your phones. Um, I'm not putting notes with all of these because I'm not really working off notes. I hope that... Hope that's okay. But you can always hit a pause and write down the scriptures. Uh, Proverbs 8 and verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. If you want to be on God's side, you got to hate evil. So God hates evil. Psalm 9710. You want to write that one down? Um, you... There, there are other, Amos 5, 15, go there. Are you back? Okay. Scriptures that ask us questions such as, why would God allow this to happen? For example, why was this man born blind? Well, it doesn't reflect the truth behind the universe. Instead, it shows us that our ideas are often wrong that no, the man had done nothing wrong and the parents had done nothing wrong for this man to be born blind. But God was going to use that blindness as a way to show the power of Jesus. Okay, we get that. 
how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, when Paul says, I've been trying to get to you, but the devil got in the way. He's thwarted my plans. He's blocked me. And never does Paul says, and where was God? Because God should have stomped him. This shocks me that there is evil in the world and the devil could stop me from going where I wanted to go to talk about Jesus. He never, he's not surprised. He doesn't even have to explain it to the Thessalonians saying, all right, now here's the theology behind what I just said. No, it was understood that not everything in the universe is out there liking us. We're not alone. And some things out there really don't like us. And our God, instead of stomping it all out and letting us be in a universe that's already heaven, has something he is doing with us but we also are to be responding and working with him to roll some things back. I mean, in the, very, in the most simplistic of ways, a sign indicated this once. That I, this is back in the 80s. Now, those of you that have been born since the year 2000, God bless you. I, I, and seriously, you know, I'm not doing the Tennessee bless your heart thing. You've, you've been raised in an amazing era. And you do need to understand that things were different. In the 80s, nobody had a cell phone. Super, super, super rich people did have car phones that cost hundreds of dollars per call, and they were prime ministers and presidents. You know, it just, you did not have internet of any kind. If you wanted to find something out, you had to go to a library, go through a card catalog, hit and miss through the guide to readers, periodicals, and you know, see the periodic guide to readers literature. Is that what it's called? Whatever it was. You had to work, you had to work a day and a half and maybe you'd find what you could find on Google or Bing with one, one little query, even misspelled. It was different. And so if you wanted to access pornography, you had to go somewhere to buy it. And so there were stores set up. And by the way, I've seen a couple of those, at least by signs, off interstates. And I'm going, really? Those are still here? Um, it'll direct you over. And I'm going, yeah, really? I don't, you know, you know, you kind of want to circle around that whole area, get away from it. But back in the 80s, 70s, 60s, all of it, these were common. Uh, adult bookstores or whatever you want to call them. And people would sneak because you want to be seen. Some even put fences around a parking lot so people could come in with some level of anonymity. And if you're thinking, well, people could just take pictures of the license plates, not back then. Cameras were not ubiquitous. Uh, it was a whole different world. But I can remember we moved back to the States and it was in the late 80s. And there was one of these stores uh, in our, our wee town uh, of Lancaster, Ohio. And somebody put a sign up there didn't last long, somebody pulled it down, that said, open by permission of the local churches. What they mean? What they meant was the local churches could have bonded together, taught their people, gone then to the city council, lobbied to have zoning or whatever take this away. And again, if you're a First Amendment advocate, I understand, please don't run down that hole. We're just talking about this now. They had the power to do all of this, but they didn't. Maybe there are reasons, but here's what I'm saying. Could it be that we had a job to do 
and God is waiting for us to do our job? Not to, not to be like Abraham saying, all right, God keeps promising us a kid. Let's just form a committee and get it done. No, it's working hand in hand with God. How can I do this? That therefore, you're not gonna take a gun or a club or insults and curses into an abortion clinic. You're not gonna do that. You're gonna find a way to spread love so that the abortion clinics are no longer necessary because the people hallow their bodies, they hallow their children. That's not where we are right now. And I think you could say that's our fault too. There is evil out there. And we have confused omnipotence, God being all powerful, with omni-controlling, that he controls all things. How could he give us some measure of free will and birds and horses and snakes some measure of randomness if you don't want to assign to them free will without losing control of it and being okay with losing control of it? Why did God let little Adolf live, but not all the babies he killed? Did he know what evil Hitler would unleash? If he does, if he did, doesn't he bear some responsibility? I'm going to give you an illustration that we have to, we will go back to time and time again. It'll be in, I think, about the fourth sermon, and I really hate to do it this early. But I need to do it because if I don't, some of you are going to opt out back out of here and you're not going to come to the end to see the worldview changing and a worldview improving process that we, we finally arrive at, a place where we can absolutely get what God is doing and understand the not doing. And it doesn't mean we're going to like it, but it shows us the kind of world we're in. What kind of God made the world? What kind of world did God make? All right. Now, I'm not going to do fancy computer graphics here because I don't know how. I'm going to use old school. Like it? There you go. We look back at our past and our past is like that. Some things happened. You're getting a reflection of my tree out there. It's not my tree. It's a tulip poplar causes all kinds of allergy issues, but they're pretty. We see the past. It either happened or it didn't. You're told that history is written by the, the winners, and that's true. But we do understand that real history is what happened and what didn't, and it's a, it's a line. I'm going to put a box here. We're going to call that Schrodinger's box. Now, I'll go again at this later in more detail. Many of you have heard that perhaps about quantum physics, quantum mechanics, that one of the tools to explain what's going on is Schrodinger's cat, and he has a box. And in the box, he says there is a cat. Now, the cat could be alive or it could be dead. At this point, two possibilities exist. The only way to drop it from two possibilities to one and continue the straight line is to open the box and see. Once observed, we can see it's a live cat or it's a dead cat, and then the box moves forward. Because you see, the box doesn't just contain cats. And there are countless possibilities. The box could be empty. It could have a turtle. It could have a snake. It could have a book. It could have one die. It could have five dice. 
Some of the dice might be hexagonal. You could go for infinity, speaking of the things that might be in the box. But when you open the box and you look, all of that collapses into one reality. Now, you've heard, perhaps, of the multiverse. The idea, and they, they come up with this, not to try to do away with God, but because it does solve some problems in physics. It creates other problems as well. It's not proven at all. It's just a theory that helps explain some, why some equations work and some don't. And the multiverse is, according to those that espouse it, uh, it, that it does exist and that all possible universes exist. And so a universe in which I'm two days younger exists, a universe in which I uh, was a mass murderer exists, a universe in which I am the servant of my goldfish exists. I don't have a goldfish, but you get the point. All possible universe exists. But we only see the one. This is the future. Because we haven't reached it yet. The way we see things is this line. And then the very microsecond of now. Right? And then that microsecond collapses into reality. We look up, is it raining or is it not? Oh, it's not raining. You know, love me, love me not. We find a way to collapse things into the reality. Should I um, give this talk from the soundstage or from my office? I chose office. Okay. You see what I mean? All of those possibilities collapse. Out here is a future, and we're not there yet. Here's one of the hardest lessons for non-physicists, and especially good Christians, to learn. There is no future. There's no singular future. There are quadrillions upon quadrillions, exponentially quadrillions on top of that, of possible futures. To be a Calvinist, you believe God planned one future. And they talk about how, behold the glory and wisdom of God. You know something? God's bigger than that. He's a God that's able to say, if you do this, Moses, then I'll do this. But if you do that, then I'll do this. In other words, it's not settled until you decide and we work together. Now, can God put things there that we're going to do this and this is going to happen and this is going to happen? Yes. But the getting to it is often not a straight line because he works with humans and he works in the present and the now even though he has determined some things will occur in the future for example let me put this away i hope you're impressed by the high tech cost a ton of money that did i think it's like six bucks anyway well spent we'll see what does god know about the four $100 bills in my right pocket. Give you a moment, let you think. All right, 
he doesn't know anything about them because they don't exist. I don't have $100 bills in my pocket. What does God know about my pet border collie? He doesn't because it doesn't exist. You understand that? All right, here's the biggie. What does God know about the future? The future doesn't exist. Every single millisecond, all of the possible futures are collapsing into one reality. And God is big enough to have a plan to continue to be righteous and good and God, whichever of these quadrillions upon quadrillions of paths the future takes. One line God, that would be very impressive. But the God we have is so much bigger than that, that he is able to say, if this, then that. But if not, then this. And if we try this, and yes, there are times in scripture where he says, we'll try this. If that doesn't work, we'll try that. If that doesn't work, we'll try that. He puts it in our laps. How many times does he say, choose you this day, whom you will serve? If everything is already pre-chosen and all molecules are under his sovereignty, that is a mockery. That's teasing. But God doesn't tease. If he says, choose, you have the power to choose. If he says, I set before you today these things to choose, he's not lying to you. It's not a three-card Monte game where he's already determined which cup has the secret coin? Well, let's go a bit further. We're going to try to keep these long-form videos down to between an hour and a half and two hours because uh, I will wear out, frankly. I know some of you will listen to these on trips. I've been told that by so many people. And you can go back and listen to them again and again or that you like to string them together. That's terrific. That encourages me no end, frankly. But... My, my problem is I can't go that long. So uh, let me go as long as I can and we'll do it that way. Now, look at evil in the Old Testament. It's there. And if you know anything about, well, first of all, your Old Testament, and I assume you do, but you also know the literature of other peoples. By the way, there's no way that I can say that I do. I've read enough of it to know that the Old Testament stands in stark difference to all other ancient literature I've ever seen. Because all other ancient literature, we're not talking codes and laws, we're talking about literatures, their myths and their stories, are full of demons, full of gods acting like demons fighting each other, attacking each other, biting parts off each other, not making that out up, spitting out those parts and those parts become universes, not making that up either. That's the norm in Mesopotamian literature and early North African literature, in Semitic literatures before there were the Jews. We, we, or, and while there were Jews, they're all around them. We find all of them are like this. And yet, the Old Testament says almost nothing about them. In Job chapter 1, we, we see where the devil 
uh, Satan, a, a prosecuting attorney, basically is what those were. And I covered that recently in one of our um, Monday morning messages, I believe. So go back and look at that. It seems that God was quite comfortable with Satan walking in and challenging him right there in heaven. And that's not the picture of God we normally have. But God even negotiating with him about what could and could not be done with Job. Some mentions of demons in the Old Testament are worth looking at. Um, Isaiah really is probably the best place to go for that. Um, we'll go to Isaiah 34 and verse 14. Yeah, let's go there. It's, um, it doesn't really come across in the NIV, but I'm going to read the NIV. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas, and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also repose and find for themselves places of rest. Um, that's also in Isaiah 13, 21. It's in Psalm uh, 91, 5. These hairy goats that the NIV calls them, were spirits in Mesopotamia. They called the spirits, the evil spirits, hairy goats. And that's why hairy goat idols were completely forbidden. In Leviticus 17.7, for example, 1 Chronicles 11, I think it's 15, hairy goats were looked upon as, as symbols of the demonic, and those show up as the night creatures that stalk and do evil. Perhaps the use of water is the most common. I, I did a whole sermon on this, and I've done it even at Pepperdine University once, uh, years and years ago, where water, why do we have to pass through water to get to God? You know, that whole baptism thing. And the Jews frequently did that, that ritual bathing. Uh, Muslims to this day, when they pray, their, their times of prayer every day, they, they do hands that are ritual cleansing of faces and they also do ritually wash hands and feet and face but during the prayers it's done without water it's done as a symbol um they they explained all that to me because i watched them and i said can you tell me what this is uh, it's always nice to ask anyhow the water would be troubled with lilith or with rahab those were names of demons that lived in water and Baal, or Baal, as I was always told to call him growing up, uh, found out later on it's called Baal. Uh, he was a storm god, but also god of raging waters and in the waters. That's why whenever the Jewish people would come up against, for example, the Jordan, they would hesitate to cross, and God would then dry it up ahead of them, and why the people on the other side felt safe, because their god was in charge of the water. In Genesis 1, you already see God at work. And by work, I mean war. He comes upon a scene of cosmic turmoil and shoves back the water, divides water and land, divides waters from water, and then populates the, the stage with the characters that'll play the part in the story he is going to tell. The, the motif is played out throughout all of Scripture. Where am I? I'm in Isaiah. I'm going to go back to, um, to, to Psalm 104 to give you an illustration. Um, Proverbs 8 that we went to earlier, 
You can also go to Proverbs 8, 27 through 29. But we're going to go to um, Psalm 104, uh, great psalm, of course, 7 through 9. All right, just to give you a taste. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. That sounds like he's talking about the flood. He is. But it's also the language they use to drive back any evil. God would speak and shove back the water. It's in Job. Job chapter 38, verses 6 through 11. You, it's just a, it's a common thing. If you want to do one more, we could do one more. Uh, Psalm 29, verse 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And it goes on uh, verse 10. We'll skip down to verse 10. Um, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. This this was their symbolic way of speaking evil and those things that we cannot control. God's over them. Um, there was an opponent of God mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, many names are used in English, but in Hebrew it is yam. Uh, Anglicized would be Y-A-M-M. You'll find him here as the Leviathan in Psalm 74 verses 10 through 13. He is a demon lord well known in Mesopotamia and had demons under him that could be unleashed upon the land if God withdrew his hand. Job 7 verse 12. God has guards against them. Wait a minute. Cast your mind back way back, way back when you were young and innocent and we first started this broadcast uh, an hour and a half ago. Remember Daniel and his prayer? Go back and look at that again. Because while he was having his conversation with these angels, well, with one angel, you look up and there were guards, angels. They're, it's usually translated angels in most versions, but the older versions would translate it more correctly as watchers, guarding different intersection points around them and calling out to them to hurry it up because war was happening and they needed to get back to it. So this conversation was being guarded and demons are being held back from it. It's pretty cool. We see uh, Habakkuk, uh, that beautiful little book. I love that little book. Read we're going to wrap this up about now, I think, because we need to start it again, do another one soon. Um, and my voice is going to wear out. You know, the, there's so much I'd like to say, but God gave me a soft voice at the best of times. And the older I get, the softer it gets. So I hope you understand. Habakkuk um, 8, let's see, 3, verses 8 through 15. And then I'm close enough. Yeah, I want to do it. I want to go to Isaiah. Um, let's go to Isaiah 51. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 11, if you're punching that into an app uh, or writing it down. I always assume people are just using an app anymore. It used to be when you'd 
do a Bible verse, you'd hear pages turning. Um, and I like that, but people use other ways now. Uh, Isaiah 51, 9 through 11. Awake, <clears throat> awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. It's calling for God. All right, get in here. Uh, awake is an arm, a day's gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab was yet another demon, usually lived in the water. It, that uh, was it not you who cut him, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? So there was demonic action with the crossing out of Egypt? Yeah, yeah. The ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown on their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. So yes, yes, yes. God can determine that he is going to win. And he, he can determine what he's going to do in the future. But he chooses to work with us to get to those points. So much more. By the way, if you want to just read Jeremiah, which can be a challenge. Jeremiah, uh, hang on, I thought I knew. 51? Yeah, I think it is. Jeremiah 51, verses 34. Let me just see if, make sure I'm right. Um, no, nope, nope, nope. Oh, that's it. Hang on. I can be right. I was looking in the wrong chapter. Um, Jeremiah 51, 34. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He's thrown us into confusion. He's made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. And then you look at verse um, 55. The Lord will destroy Babylon, will silence her noisy den. Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. So once again, water is used in the Old Testament as a symbol of danger, evil, and as the abode of demons forces that will rage against us if God does not hem them in. So, there's so much more to do. Work on this. Listen to a few sermons uh, starting September the 10th. And we'll do another long-form video as soon as my voice will let me do it. All right? I know this is challenging. You're going to really like where we end up. You really will. And it will strengthen your faith to no end. But you got to take the process. You got to take the journey. Ready? Great. Thank you so much for those of you who give so that Miss Cammie and I can eat and do these things. And thanks so much of you for those of you who pray for us and for those of you, uh, you who write in to info at oursafeharbor.com and say, hey, we live here. We'd like to find out if other members live here. Can Patrick come and visit? Because I love that. I really do. God bless you. We'll talk to you very, very soon.